Amen. Please be seated. Our passage of focus again this morning is once again from the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We resume our walk through Ephesians together. We've come to verse 15. You know we are walking through the pieces of armor in the whole armor of God. Paul's helping us to recognize the spiritual equipping that God has given his children by using this metaphor of a soldier's armament. Thus far, we have seen our need of the belt of truth, that central piece of our equipment that goes to hold what comes below and above, and it holds it all together. It's not an offensive piece, but it's a necessary piece, the belt of truth. And then we learned about the breastplate of righteousness, which covers our vital organs. And it has to do with that position of righteousness we have in Christ. The main piece that guards our vitals, that's the righteousness of Christ given to us. It also has to do with living out that righteousness as people who are new creatures in Christ. Now we come to verse 15 and we learn of another piece. It has to do with our footwear, what goes around on our feet, what helps us stand firm and helps us to move forward. We learn through this metaphor how God has specially equipped us. Now I'm going to read from Isaiah first. You'll notice it on your insert. And I'm doing this because the Apostle Paul very typically will use metaphors um, himself in the New Testament that are clearly drawn in some way from his knowledge of the Old Testament. In a a relatively famous passage that also speaks of feet or footwear, and there's not too many passages like this in the Bible, happens 700 years before Paul wrote, and this is Isaiah 52. So I'll begin by reading Isaiah 52, the verses printed there on your insert, and then I will read Ephesians 6, 13 through 15, the passage of focus this morning. Please hear God's holy word as I begin in Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. In all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And now Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given By the gospel of peace. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious Father, we are so very much appreciative of your holy word. In an age of ever changing ideas, waffling standards, and shaky human reasoning, we are in need of solid, timeless, eternal truth. Your word is truth, and you sanctify us through it, and your Holy Spirit's attending ministry to help us understand and apply 
Help us in this case to understand and apply what is meant by having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the verse of focus is verse 15. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I don't think that we give shoes the same kind of thought today as people did in antiquity. Now, we give shoes a lot of thought because there's such a vast variety of them. But shoes in general, even the cheapest shoes you'd find today, would be more protective and probably better suited than the footwear that existed in Roman times at the times of Christ. Very few people actually had footwear in those days. Nowadays, we have a variety of shoes for all sorts of things. You know, certain activities we know go much better with the right kinds of shoes. We just take this for granted. It was just this week that I was given the task of taking my daughter to buy some shoes for volleyball as she had outgrown the other shoe, the assortment of shoes that she had. Now, I was given the assignment. So therefore, it is my job to discern what shoes would be best for the task. That's important to match the shoes which, with the task. That's common sense. Right, everybody? Right. I heard the guy say yes. That's all I heard. Now, I went to the store with her, thinking in mind that they need to be um, well-constructed, tight, but comfortable on her feet, and the soles had to be able to grip the gym floor. These are for they're gym shoes. They're for volleyball. Now, I've had three boys before Willow, and I've taken them to get dozens of shoes. And their concern was, yes, function, but also the brand, you know, what was Messi wearing at the time, that's a soccer player, those kinds of things. The only concern she had had nothing to do with the brand name at all. Daddy, I, they, just, they need to be cute. Cute. Cute, okay. Again, the functionality of the shoes is what's important because it has a task to perform. I'm still learning the difference. I understand. Well, as the Lord would direct, I didn't walk in but a minute and a half after we got in, and I spotted a pair that fit everything I was looking for. And as I looked at them, I started going up the other rows to see maybe if there was any better pair than that, and I heard her say, Daddy, I like these. And I looked at them, I thought, they fit the bill. They looked a little awkward to me, but they fit the bill. She goes, look, and I knew why she wanted them. They have cheetah fur print stripes. Hey, it works for me if it works for her because they did what I needed them to do. And then the next few hours, she got to practice with them. And the next day, yesterday, she played with them, and they looked great to me. I even pointed out to some of the parents sitting there that I did, in fact, pick those shoes. It's pretty excited. The shoes are important for what they're meant to be used for. They, they help us. They give us an advantage we don't even think about anymore because we have so many shoes. Well, imagine playing a sport that had a lot of cutting to it. Certainly in the gym, you'd see that. But if you're playing soccer and you don't have cleats on the bottom of your shoes, you're slipping. If you're rounding the bases in baseball and you don't have spikes, you're going to slip out. Um, if, you don't, if you're a lineman in football, you better have some solid cleats, high-top cleats, no, no, no doubt, as you're a big person pushing up against another big person, and you have to stay stable. And that's a great picture of footwear needed to withstand the devil coming at us throwing stuff at us, trying to move forward. You're not just standing still. You're trying to move forward, move that person back. You've got to have the right footwear for this. Well, the picture we come to now with the Roman soldier's armaments, his equipment, it matches well that this would be an important piece described here where worn on our feet. The shoes of a Roman soldier were of utmost importance. Really, they're better called boots. That's why I named the sermon that. They were half boots 
in Roman times called caligas. The toes would be exposed, but they'd have a thick leather bottom, very thick. And it would, there would be nails or studs or cleats on the bottom to help get traction, to, to stand firm. And then there were straps that came up from the ankle and wrapped all the way up the cab, almost to the knee in some cases. Now, a soldier could not run well with these boots. They weren't made for running. But they could walk long distances in them swiftly enough. They could get traction like they needed. They could stand firm in these boots if they're pushed against or headed to brace themselves to throw, either throw a sword or even to battle. They could advance well, travel far, and stand against an assault. You can go places other people couldn't go with, those, with that footwear on. These were sturdy boots. If a commander told you, take that hill, you were ready to do so. The boots made the soldier ready to go where they were commanded to go. So we come to the passage. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now our having the gospel... That provides us the ability, for sure, to stand firm against the devil when he comes at us, especially when he throws his doubts at us. Our having the gospel also, though, provides us with a readiness to describe that gospel to others, to bring that gospel as we move forward. We know that the devil has dramatically impacted the world. The devil has blinded the eyes of many. He personally attacks the world's system. And and aligns himself with it so that it's opposed to God in so many respects. He makes the inhabitants of the earth restless and without peace. The vestiges of the devil, just the fall itself in the sinful flesh that we battle. We, We know the presence of Satan for sure. We are never too far from it. But for those in Christ, we have an eternally impactful advantage as we are in Christ, and Jesus has given us his armor, and this is just one more piece of that armor that helps us stand fast against him, the devil. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And here's the truth that emerges from this picture, this metaphor we have with footwear. People are restless and they want peace. That's true of everybody. We in Christ are eager or ready heralds of how people can have that peace. Let's take apart this verse a little more uh, carefully and recognize what it means. You notice that the readiness is given concerning the gospel of peace. Now, when we read the New Testament, we'll see the gospel described as the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, and here it's the gospel of peace. What does this mean? Well, the word gospel always means the same thing. It means good news. And as Paul's using it, and it's used in the New Testament, it's referring to the good news that our sins are paid for by the finished work of Jesus. To have that apply personally, we believe on Christ and we have the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he paid for them on the cross. It's, that's the simple gospel message. Forgiveness through faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's it. That's the gospel. But there's these different words that modify sometimes that are used by the writers. Here, the gospel of peace. What does this mean? Well, there's two features to the peace that we gain through the gospel. Now, there are other corollaries I'll mention, but the two main ones that we should not lose sight of has to do with this. The gospel of peace with God, that's number one. 
The gospel of peace from God. That's number two. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the Christian gospel is that everybody would have peace with each other and that there would be no war and that there would be no harm and there would be no antagonism. Now, absolutely a striving point for those who are in Christ is to seek after that kind of, that kind of harmony, starting with the body of Christ first and then hopefully as God grants that would have impact outside. But there is no impact like that whatsoever if there's not first peace with God between a person who's at war with God in their nature. There's no such thought of that kind of peace until that happens first. The vertical, we might say. And then there's the peace that comes to us from God that gives us a sense of well-being or security in God's love for us. That's the other piece. The gospel of peace has to do with these two features. Now, I want you to think about it a little more. First, the gospel of peace with God. People are naturally, naturally restless apart from the peace given by the gospel. All of us are naturally striving after something, trying to figure out what it is. We're unfulfilled. We want purpose. Everybody strives after this. We try filling our lives with things that satisfy, and if it's not God, then we'll be frustrated. No, make no mistake. Even Christians who are in Christ know the meaning of life, know our purpose is to bring glory to God, We get caught up in things, we get busy searching after things, um, enamored with things, uh, even obsessed with things, and we find ourselves restless too and discontent. So we can all appreciate this. Maybe some of you remember just striving and striving and striving, and then you came to know Christ, and it changed your restlessness to peace. So you understand this. Uh, But recognize the, the harsh reality of when you're not in Christ, you are constantly striving. Because the state of being spiritually dead or cursed by God, whether you know it or not, that causes irritation in the human spirit. There's no deep inner peace without Christ. Discomfort, restlessness apart from Christ, it's because we're at odds with God fundamentally. Kent Hughes said very well, there is a raging awareness that their life is not right. And that's true of us outside of Christ. Now, it may not look like that on the surface for someone as unbeliever, an unbeliever because they may be successful or they may be really going after something and, and they've made something the purpose of their life and they look, it's so, they're so put together. But underneath it, that won't satisfy ultimately and there's a restlessness there. In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace Paul's talking about. We have peace with God because Jesus has granted that. He's taken away our sins. He's removed the wrath of God from us. So we have peace with God. In James chapter 4, he describes this state of our being at war with God apart from Christ. The the opposite of peace. You adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That sense of restlessness is probably best described with sleeplessness. I'm sure everyone here has probably had a bout or two with insomnia. Now, I envy those people who don't. There's some people that they have no trouble sleeping. But about five years ago, I had the longest bout I've ever had. I've had bouts of it over the course of my life, uh, stress-induced or mismanagement of things that leads to stress, whatever the case. But in this case, I had five straight months of not sleeping more than an hour a night. I can't describe it for you. It was the most bizarre, frustrating thing. I couldn't pinpoint any one thing that was causing it. There were many things on my mind, and that was the problem, is that I would go to bed completely exhausted, but then I would, my mind would start racing and going over things over and over again. And if I 
drift off a little bit. It wouldn't take hardly anything for me to be up again and thinking again. And this went on for five months, and I got more and more restless and more and more irritated or irritable. It was a challenge to, to feel like this, I'm never satisfied, always feel like I could not rest, and here I have the chance to rest. Well, that's descriptive of the sense we have apart from Christ, and it's worthy because we are restless against the God who has made us with purpose, and we don't understand the purpose apart from Christ. Well, the gospel of peace gives us that purpose, or at least it solves the problem that allows us to now pursue our design to bring glory to God, whatever it is he calls you to do. It's not that you should do something different. It's that the angle you have on why you do it has changed because you're in Christ now. And now the restlessness, it goes away to a certain degree, a large degree as a believer for sure. Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians so vividly, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I quoted Hughes earlier about that raging raging awareness that their life is not right. John Stott says on the other side of it, when you come to know Christ, when you're in Christ, the gospel of peace is a reality in your life. He said, this is the solid awareness that one is reconciled to God and it's joyfully sublime. It's the opposite of restlessness. Once you're, there's like a sigh of relief knowing you're all right with God. You're, you're right with God because of what Christ has done. I remember as a young person, I was uh, about 13, I'd grown up going to church. Every week I was at church and I heard you know, a message preached or taught, but it was not clear on how I might be right with God. In fact, the only thing that was clear was I was guilty of sin. I had no doubt about it. I knew it was true. And um, you had to do this, this, and this, and this and to hopefully be okay. That's the sense. That's absolutely what I got out of the message. There was no clear declaration of how, of the gospel. It just, just wasn't. But I was religious and at church every week. And one day I was, uh, I was in the summer months, not anything to do, and there was a little Bible club that was started in the apartments across the street. And I went over there just to kind of mess around, really. I wasn't looking to listen to anything I had to say. But as I was sitting there, this lady was up there with a flannel graph. Flannel graphs, uh, bring them back. But the flannel graph worked really great for me. There was, a, there was flames in felt up on there in the middle, and this chasm. And on one side it said, it said or it had a stick figure, and I, that was me. And on the other side it said God. And there was this chasm between me and God. I felt that completely. That's exactly how I felt it to be. And there was fire between it. I knew that was right about me, that I deserved to fall into that fire. I mean, I wasn't denying that that was some bad message or some unfair message I got. I just knew in my spirit that's all true. But the problem is I had no idea how to be right with God. There was no way across that chasm. I was only meant fire. And then she starts to explain um, what Jesus did, that he took the fire for us, that he took our sins, paid for them, so that they would not be our burden any longer. And he, in a sense, stands in that gap. And he, she put a felt cross in between where, you know, the stick figure could walk across to God. That seems simple, but it was in that time frame that the whole burden was lifted off. There was a lot of things going on in my life I didn't understand. It was, was messed up over. A lot of things I didn't understand that the Bible said. I only read it a little bit, but I got that that's the message I needed. How can I be right with God? Through Christ. That's peace, because now the peace with God is made, and the next level of peace can start to happen, which is a sense of that peace, peace from God. 
So the first point about the gospel of peace is that we have peace with him. But now let's think just for a moment about what peace means on the other side of that, which is peace from God that you experience once you are in Christ. Jesus said to his disciples and to us by extension, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Now that's the kind of peace we're talking about second level, the kind you sense once you're secure in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Where's the peace come from? You've been forgiven. Now you can forgive others because you have experienced peace from God. Not just with God, now you have it from God, ongoing. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Paul says in Philippians, you can see this is not like a a one-off verse in the New Testament. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. His peace will guard you. The gospel of peace, peace with God and peace from God. This makes all the more sense when we think, of that famous Advent passage from Isaiah that we read every year. For unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not peace to the world first. It's peace with God and from God. And then from that, all sorts of things can happen when, the people, when, the, when people are redeemed. Now there's hope for that kind of peace. It's a beautiful picture painted when you start to unpack what the gospel of peace means. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, there's another perspective that's gained through the metaphor of the gospel boots I'm talking about. I've mentioned the aspect of peace. But I want us to see something else that flows from this passage. Our bearing of the gospel message, it becomes who we are rather than what we are trying to sell. It's just, it's the basis for your well-being. It's the basis for your sense of security, the basis of your joy in God. It's not something I'm trying to pitch to everybody else or make everyone else have to believe it just like I believe it. It's just who we are as people who are in Christ. Now, that makes all the difference of the world and how we carry the gospel because we want everyone to hear it. We want everyone to believe it. But we are not salespeople. We are heralds. We're just going to describe and just describe as powerful, by the way. Just describe what it is that God has done for us. That's what we're talking about. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, we declare the gospel message. That's what evangelism is. We are evangels. We say what it is. This is what the message is. You know, since the time I was that age I just mentioned, I've always had this driving force personally about this feature of just being heralds of the gospel. What does the gospel mean? means so that people know. And the reason was, you know, for those 13 years, I was attending church, and I'm just saying that I did not hear clearly the message of the gospel. Rest in Christ in his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins, and you are saved. I did not hear that clearly. That might have been couched there, but there were so many other things obscuring it that I kept losing that kernel. And so I thought to myself at an early age, I think God wants me to go tell people this, 
which is an interesting thing. When you've never gone to a Bible-believing church and really opened a Bible much yourself, you go to VBS a few years with a church and you tell the pastor you think you're supposed to be a pastor. And that's what I did and told him. He goes, oh, that's good. And I'd say, the reason why is for 12 or 13 years, I wrestled with this whole issue of how to be right with God and thought, I just want to be put in a position that anytime I could talk to anybody about this, that they would be clear about this. No one should sit in church for more than a week and not know what the gospel is. If you're in a church that does that, you should get out of that church. That's what you should do. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, I guess, but hold me accountable to it too. And the beauty of the means of grace is that even if I mess that up one given Sunday, it's still proclaimed when we do communion or it's proclaimed in some other feature of the liturgy. It's just essential. And it's something that has driven me personally. But I used to think that's just something that pastors should be called to. And there is a special calling for that that definitely has a level of accountability that's different. But it's absolutely true for all of us as believers. And we're not salespeople, so don't be stressed on that level. It's just we're heralds. And whatever personality he's given you, relationships he's given you, the job he's given you, the friends he's given you, the hobbies he's given you, the interests he's given you, in all these ways, you are just who you are. You're in Christ. And you will, on that basis, have opportunity to herald the gospel. You will have that opportunity. God will give it to you. I love what it says in our in our mission of a, as a church. We're a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and make sure we get as many people walk the aisle as possible. Or as many response cards filled out as possible. As many baptisms as possible. No, it's to proclaim his gospel to the world. That's what we want to be about individually, but then as corporately and as we partner beyond our walls to do more of this. It's not our task to make people believe or even convince them of the gospel. The gospel does not need our help to convince people. It's our task to give it very plainly and clearly what it is. This is what is such a lovely connection to what is written in Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. We're publishing how we can have peace with God. We're broadcasting how we can have peace with God, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We are bringing good news wherever we are. And wherever we go. How many of you have seen those advertisements in the paper and you're looking for a job and you're, you're looking really closely because you're worried it's a sales job? People that are good salesmen, that's, that's great for them. But for most people, you're like, oh, I hope this isn't a sales job. Then you get there because the ad got you there and then you realize, oh no, they're going to make me sell something. That's what they're going to do. In Christ, you're not selling anything. You're a proclaimer by your, your words and your actions for sure evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. It's the good news about Christ that God is powerful to save us and he does so through the work of his son. Believe on him. Jesus said in Matthew 9, this says about Jesus in Matthew 9, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now it's true. Absolutely. God does equip certain individuals in the church to be evangelists. People who are able to, in a more, you might say, forceful way, confront opposition, 
proclaim the gospel, and God gives them special fruit. People come to Christ. There are evangelists. There are missionaries. There are pastors and evangelists and teachers. There are people that do have this mantle, and the church has to practice those in formal ways. It's not the calling of every individual believer to go to that level necessarily. But we are all individual ambassadors and proclaimers and heralds as opportunity arises for us. This is how we all participate. The role of every believer to be a herald in this way. Ian DeGuid wrote a book on the whole armor of Christ that I refer to from time to time in these sermons. And this is a statement he says so well that it's worth sharing with you. He said, we sometimes think of evangelism as a kind of spiritual multi-level marketing program in which it is our job to browbeat friends and relations into making a purchase that they never needed or wanted. And then, if at all possible, recruit them into doing the same thing with their friends and relations. No wonder we are not enthused about the prospect. Heralds are vastly different from Tupperware salespeople. That's dated Tupperware salespeople. They do not have a product that needs to be marketed. They have, a wonderful, they have wonderful good news that needs to be trumpeted. You know, people may or may not choose to listen to the announcement that we give. Our task is simply to proclaim the good news of God's grace, God's peace through Christ. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, it makes sense, given all that God has done for us in Christ, with this, there will be an eagerness, or as the text says it, a readiness with the gospel, a readiness to give this proclamation. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I want to alert you to something interpretive here that commentators, they wrestle a little bit with this. There's discussion about that phrase, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does it mean exactly? Does it mean that we're ready with the gospel so that when Satan attacks us, we stand firm? Or does it mean the gospel makes us ready to herald, to share it? And you'll see the difference played out in some of the translations. The NIV says, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So the gospel, we, we lay hold of it, and so we're now ready. The King James Version says, preparation of the gospel of peace. The ESV, which we have before us, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So again, some will say that it has to do with being ready to stand because we have the gospel when the devil attacks. Others, it refers to our being ready to share the gospel. Well, both are absolutely biblical truths that we can find in other passages. The gospel gives us peace, and so we're ready. We could take what the devil throws at us. But that has more to do with the helmet of salvation that you're going to see here soon. Then there's also the readiness that we have to share this message because it's so gripped us. I think it's best for us to see that as the main emphasis coming out of this passage because of something Paul says in Romans. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, and then Paul quotes Isaiah 52. It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So back to our passage. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Believing the gospel certainly makes us 
ready to share it. We'll want to share it when we grasp it. We'll have an eagerness about it. I think a, a story that helps explain this and cement this uh, in conclusion. Um, I have regularly gone to a local place just around the corner, discount tire, I don't mind saying, to get my tires done. And I have multiple old cars over the years. But the last two years in particular, I've done all my tires there. Because there's this manager, young manager named Trey, who is like a rock star. Now, here's the thing. I mean, it's just tires, right? But I, like I said, I, I put four tires on regularly. I've put three different, four sets of tires on, or three sets of tires on, on cars in the last two years. And I'll go in for repairs from time to time. Now, for some reason, though, there's a place a little closer to my house. I'm not going to name it. But I'll go there first because they're right there. I can literally drop the car off and walk to my house. But every time they do something wrong or don't have what I need to fix it. And then they act like I'm kind of a dummy for even coming in. It drives me crazy. So I drive over to Discount Tire and I get it done. And it gets, it gets done to the, a level beyond. It's like the Chick-fil-A of tire places. And there's Trey when I walk in. And he's meeting everybody's needs. And, I mean, this guy, he's, he's like a hero to me, even personally anymore, just the way he's, he's taking care of things. I even sent Nathan there. And Nathan is as cheap as you get when it comes to car parts. And he loves this guy. He co- that Trey guy, I know this Trey guy. I don't know if he has no parents, I will adopt him. And he's like 30. But at any rate, the guy is awesome. He's incredible what he does. I took my 74 Plymouth tire in there on Wednesday, this Wednesday. Because the stem was leaking. It's, it, the, the stem on it's original. It's almost 50 years old. Well, you can't find those long stems most places. Well, back up. What did I really do? I went to the other place because it was close. Can you just, I'll drop it off. Can you just fix it? He look, takes one look at it. Doesn't he let me get in the store? We don't have stems like that. No, I'm like, dude, get a stem. I mean, it's not that hard. Find a stem. I'm going to give you 20 bucks for it. And I'll bring other, other business if you'll just fix this. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Walk out, drive over to tires, discount tire. Walk up, there's Trey. He doesn't know my Well, he knew my name once he looked it up. But he saw me and he goes, what do you got there? I said, well, it's a 50-year-old tire. It needs a, a stem. The stem's leaking. Is that all that's wrong with it? He looked at it and he started to examine I said, well, you know, hey, Trey, whatever you think, just let me know. All right, give me your number. Give me your number. I'm not 15 minutes in running other errands, and I got a text back saying my tire's done. So I drive back to Trey, and there he is. Lots of other customers, rolls the tire out to me, gives it to me. I said, hey, how much are you? You don't owe me anything. But if you have a car, need four tires again, come back and see me. You better believe I'm going to come back and see you, Trey. I'm going to send everyone I know to come see you because this is the kind of business that I appreciate. Look at how you appreciate. And you know those Google, those Google reviews? Well, I got on Google right away, and I wrote one. And this is what I wrote. Trey is a rock star. He's going places. I go in knowing I'll get good service, and it ends up being better. I just want to bring a car in even if it doesn't need to get fixed. That's how I like you. Such good service. I'm ready to tell everyone. Well, if you've been forgiven of your sins by the God of the universe, by Christ, can we not tell people? As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. People are restless and they want peace. We should be eager heralds of how people can have that peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for bestowing upon us your battle-proven, spiritual, war-tested, holy, reliable, spiritual armor. In particular, thank you for making us recipients of the gospel of peace. Now, dear Lord, please give us a sense of the readiness that is ours by your Spirit to be heralds of the gospel of peace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's respond by singing 369. 369 verses 1 through 3. We'll stand as the elders and the uh, ushers come.